I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Palawa people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Making the wines in a real winery now, we're filtering, um, you know, I just, it has definitely been an incredible journey uh, and I have just learnt so much and I'm so grateful to have had those opportunities to do what I've done. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Alice Davidson has a real sense of style. She's a globe-trotting wanderer who isn't afraid to forge her own path. Aunt Alice is her brand, where she makes delicious, quaffable art from cool climate grapes grown in Tasmania. Hey Alice, thanks for joining me. Thanks Shante, that's very nice of you all of that. Make me sound great. (laughs) Well, you do make delicious wine, but you are a kind of artistic kind of soul. So I kind of wanted to put a bit of a spin on it like that. But tell me a little bit about your upbringing. What kind of childhood did you have? You grew up in the Adelaide Hills, is that right? Yeah, we did. Uh, We grew up in a tiny little town called Houghton, um, just up in the hills, sort of to the more northeast of Adelaide. And my father was a panel beater and had his own panel shop, which was at our house. And my mum worked at the Tea Tree Gully Council for about 35 years. And our property actually backed onto a giant unused quarry that was huge. I mean, maybe if I went back, it wouldn't be so big, but as a kid, it seemed massive. And we lived a pretty typical 1980s, 90s upbringing, I'd say, where we were pretty unsupervised and we spent a lot of time, my little brother, Mitch, and my older sister, Corey, in that quarry, uh, yabbing in the dams, um, picking blackberries, wandering through the creeks, um, climbing on rusty old unused machinery and falling off, safe, very safe. Um, but, yeah, it was a really outdoorsy upbringing and we were sort of left to manage ourselves a lot and just make our own fun. And I remember that fondly and exploring with my brother and picking blackberries and, yeah, being pretty connected to the earth, I guess. So it kind of think makes me think of like Alice with the amazing immune system. <laughs> oh yeah, maybe. Although now I have a two-year-old, that's definitely not the immune system. That's <laughs> 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 that good. <laughs> Talking about like an outdoorsy kind of childhood like that, I had a kind of similar one, and it makes me think of how much you need to use your imagination as a child. You know, being that you're kind of you know got this great space, but you really need to kind of occupy your mind. Is that how you got into geology? Yeah, I'd say so. My, as I said, my father was a panel beater, but uh, our family was a very science-y kind of family. Like my dad actually studied engineering at Adelaide Uni and my sister, who's about six, five or six years older than me, she uh, did a PhD at Adelaide Uni in chemistry, biochemistry. Um, my brother went through Adelaide Uni, did a science degree and ended up becoming a geologist. And I think it was just that uh, connection to sort of the land and spending a lot of time outdoors. And I actually remember one of my earliest memories is actually making maps of 
the quarry and there was this other sort of patch of land across the road from our house that was like crown land and it was the road runoff. And I remember like drawing these kind of maps as a kid of the road runoff and there was, you know, this wild fennel growing and I used to kind of map, make these maps and I mean, they weren't overly, you know, complicated or anything, but they were just, you know, a child's interpretation of the land. And I remember doing that specifically. So it was kind of a natural thing that I led towards. And I just started doing my science degree, sort of my father encouraged me. Um, and I did well in school, science, maths, did um, lots of maths, physics, chemistry, all of that, and did pretty well always at school. Our parents were pretty strict on us about getting good grades. And then that sort of just naturally led me to science and then into the geology because I just liked that, yeah, that sort of earthy, soilsy plants, you know, landscapes, waterways, all of that. I sort of just naturally lent towards all of that. Hmm. I mean, it's a nifty skill to have that kind of knowledge in your back pocket when it comes to wine and obviously a really natural progression into the natural world of kind of growing and farming. Do you have a first memory of wine or did that come later after you've kind of travelled? Yeah, I wouldn't say we were a big wine family. My, my dad would drink the occasional red wine. He sort of, you know, had sparkling red wine at Christmas. Um, and my mum did like a glass of sparkling wine, but they weren't really big drinkers. And I wouldn't say I'd have any real distinct memories from my childhood. Um, my first memories really of really getting into wine myself and drinking it are probably when I was in uni that with doing that undergrad degree, science, um, we lived in a share house in Adelaide in Myland and it was really hot and we were three young, you know, crazy girls, 19 or so, however old we were, 19, 20, and we were broke, dead broke, uh, and on the weekends we used to buy five-litre bags of goon and it sounds crazy <laughs> that that is my first memory but it honestly is. I didn't sort of never really was much of a beer drinker. Like I don't drink beer at all anymore um, and I sort of never liked it, never really liked any spirits. They were all, I don't know, I just didn't like them. I just always liked wine and sadly those were my first um, sort of memories. But even then drinking, you know, those bagged, bagged wines, I remember we sort of every weekend we'd sort of buy a different one and we'd like grade them and rate them. Uh, so we sort of started off on, you know, like the classic Fruity Lexia and we were like, oh, you know, I remember thinking, God, this is a bit like sweet. It's kind of okay, but it's a bit fruity, a bit sweet. So, you know, we got down, I remember like, you know, every weekend we'd get a different one and we'd sort of, you know, be like, oh, this one's a bit too much like this, this one's a bit too much like that. And, you know, when you're drinking five litres of it, it sort of needs to be, needs to be all right. So, I think eventually we whittled it down to uh, the berry fresh dry white was the sort of most palatable boxed wine. Um, so, you know, maybe not the most high-flying first memory, but um, still was really into those wines and, you know, was even was sort of grading and rating and was aware of those quality differences even in the most... <laughs> 
<laughs> Bogan way. <laughs> Look, it's a rite of passage and also I think it's really important, you know, if if somebody is in the wine industry and they don't have a goombag story, I think they're lying because, you know, it, 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 they were they were major and, yeah, like you said, if you're drinking five litres of the stuff, I can see why you'd gravitate towards drier styles because otherwise you're just really ill the next day, aren't you? <laughs> That's it. I mean, we were probably ill the next day anyway, but I'm not going to say that that was because of the, the wine. That was probably more to the level of consumption but yes we're all young ones (laughs) Mike Benny you know still to this day I think does you know a kind of goombag um kind of you know tasting and and reviews of all of them and and it's so you know yeah I, I remember him sending me a photo of them being dropped off to his house and I was like oh man that is a lot I mean that's a lot of storage you think wine's bad but when you're looking at five liters <laughs> Oh, good on him. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about travelling the world. You know, after uni, where did you go and what did you do and, and where did wine come to play a part in that journey? Yes, yeah, so I travelled. I actually did a gap year. I did one year of uni and then I had a gap year where, like every young good Aussie, I went to London and worked um, in a bar um, and I was working in pubs in London and uh, up sort of in the English countryside for sort of about six months and just that exposure to not so much wine but just I guess the service industry, hospitality industry and being obviously in Europe, that exposure to, you know, all wines like, you know, it's not like Australia where there's lots of Australian wine served, if you go to your local pub, it's like there's French, Spanish, Italian, like just a really sort of diverse, um, you know, beverage landscape in London. So that was probably the start of the travel. I was 19 at the time. I came back after that year, gap year, and I sort of traveled around a lot in that year to Europe, like Germany, went to Oktoberfest, drank a lot of beer. That Maybe that's where my... um. My now distaste of beer comes from. I drank a bit too much <laughs> that in that Oktoberfest. Um, and, yeah, went through Spain, Germany. And I was sort of touching on these wine regions and these wines um, throughout that time, but I still didn't have it in my mind. It had, still hadn't really clicked um, to sort of study wine and to make that a career, although there was always that sort of interest there and that, uh, yeah, that always interest in food, wine, cooking, and, uh, you know, just exploring my palate. Uh, the traveling sort of continued after uni, I went to, um, Canada and I worked a vintage at a place called Cedar Creek, which is in British Columbia in the Okanagan Valley, which is beautiful. Uh, and that was after uni. So that's more where that wine, then I was sort of tuned in and everything sort of started to come together then. The travel, the food and wine, the, I had the, I'd gone back to uni and studied the degree then. So I had sort of had the, the theory behind everything and it all just sort of started coming together. And that's when I really thought, yep, this is, this is in my veins. This is, you know, this is me. This is so me. And it just, yeah, that was, I guess, the start. And that was about 10 years ago, so not too long ago. Um, but, yeah, 
travel. It's just so good. Just opens your mind. You know, it was a good thing to do to travel a lot when I was young. I think it really has shaped who I am and shapes my winemaking to be open-minded and adaptable, changeable. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially what I think when you're getting into wine to start with, being somewhere like Canada where you understand the language would have been really important too because it can be kind of off-putting when, you know, you're trying to understand what someone's saying, let alone working out, you know, you know, all these technical jargon and everything like that. So the Okanagan's a wonderful spot to kind of get your, to kind of dip your toes in. That's right. And I'd already actually lived in Canada before that, about five years before I went back for that trip. I lived uh, for two and a half years in Banff in um, Alberta. And I just loved everything about Canada and the people Um and, yeah, they're just so – they're kind of like Australians in many ways, I think. Very laid back, very casual, um, very down to earth and just trying to sort of do make the best wines they can. Um, and it's a cool climate, I guess, in British Columbia, but quite different in that it's got quite a big diurnal shift and a seasonal shift. So it's obviously, you know – freezing literally under snow in winter and then right through to you know 45 degrees plus like when I landed in that vintage in 2015 which was the year that the horrendous bushfires swept through Washington and California and a lot of Cedar Creek's vineyards were actually right down south on the border with Washington so a lot of their fruit was really really heavily affected by smoke taint um so it was, you know, devastating and, you know, unbelievable all at the same time to work in that winery. You know, I'd only done a couple of vintages at that point at Darenberg, so sort of, um, you know, a total rookie and just I remember just pumping over tanks and just thinking, God, like, is it just me or does this wine, does this tank, it just smells like an ashtray. Like it was insane oh no that's so incredibly sad because like you said you would probably they wouldn't have had much probably experience with something like that and then oh no so what did you do did you say anything I mean is it your place to say anything I mean they knew but they were just you know doing the best they could sort of pushing through they weren't really sure what to do um it was a new winemaker that vintage too it had been Daryl Brooker for many years uh an Aussie guy uh, and they just hired a new winemaker, Alexis Moore, who was from – she was a Kiwi. Um, she'd been working at Saracen Estate in New Zealand for a long time. And, yeah, we, they were just – I mean, you know, now I think it's sort of coming to the realisation that there's not a lot you can do with smoke taint and it's almost better in a lot of instances to just not pick that fruit and to sort of, you know, just try again next year. But they were picking everything – um, and yeah, they just trying to kind of sort of just cover it up with oak and that sort of thing, but it was pretty devastating. Um, some of the fruit was okay, like some of the fruit from further north. So it was still, or some of the stuff they sort of got off earlier, some of the whites and sparkling. Uh, so still learnt a lot of that vintage, but yeah, pretty, um, incredible thing to see to witness sort of firsthand yeah and just not typical of what 
<laughs> that, that those regions, you know, see. I mean, they do get a lot of sunshine out there in saying that though, don't they? Because they've got peaches and, and cherries and amazing stone fruit that grows out that way. That's it. It's a huge uh, primary production region, the Okanagan Valley, and it's got both that massive diurnal shift where it's really cold at night, really hot during the day, and that huge seasonal shift where they, you know, they make up that ice wine in Canada, it gets freezing, the vines are under snow, and then next minute there it's 45 degrees. So very – and quite hilly, um, you know, not dissimilar to Tasmania in many ways, very uh, – you know, the aspect and the individual sort of site selection of the vineyards makes a huge difference to the end product of the wine, whether they're, you know, slightly shifted to the east or the west or the north. And, um, yeah, the beautiful big river through the middle there, the Okanagan River. Um, yeah, very similar to sort of the Human Valley where I am now. So... Wow, yeah, it's that's definitely something that's got to stay with you. When you return back to Australia, what what was your first kind of winemaking post here? So while I was doing that vintage, a job had come up online for an associate winemaker at Norfolk Rise Vineyard, which is in Mount Benson, which is a region next to Robe, uh, which is a little town that a lot of people know, a little fishing village, and I had met about a year previously to that um, my now partner and husband, Tom, uh, and he was living in Robe in a shed in a very humble abode. Um, And would you believe it? All I wanted to do was go back to Robe and live in his shed with him. Uh, So this job came up at Norfolk Rise. um, And so I jumped at it. Um, I didn't have a lot of, you know, knowledge of the region, I'd been there quite a few times. Actually, one of my good girlfriends, Kate Foreman, was living in Robe at the time, so I knew the town well. Um, yeah, and I interviewed over online for that job when I was in Canada and landed it, and then that was the start of that journey at Norfolk Rise Vineyard, which took me uh, – I was there four years in the end, and um, that was sort of the real – Official, that was kind of my big break, I guess, and that's where I really learnt, you know, the nuts and bolts of getting wine from the vineyard through to bottle uh, in a commercial sense, yeah. I love some of the the regions down that way. Um, We probably don't talk about them as much as we should. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about Mount Benson and Robe or a couple of things that you think you wish people knew more about perhaps the winemaking in that area? Yeah, like you said, they're not very spoken about and I think they are probably a couple of the most underrated regions in Australia, I think. Um, They are very small in terms of the quantity of grapes and the geographical area and so there's Robe, which is its own wine region, which is from sort of the township of Robe south, and then that borders the Mount Gambier wine region, which is also very underrated and up and coming, really cool climate. And then there's the Mount Benson region, which borders to the north of Robe and continues up sort of back up towards through Kingston um, towards Adelaide. Um, so very small regions and then I guess they're all part of sort of the greater limestone coast region and 
I guess they've sort of always been in the shadow of the Coonawarra. And I think that is possibly has been traditionally maybe a part of the problem. The Coonawarra like makes beautiful wines, you know, Cabernet, and they've got a really strong identity. And I think maybe in the early days of the Robin Mountbanson winemaking era, they sort of were in that shadow and didn't really quite know how to break free of that and sort of just be their own regions because it's quite hard because they were small. There's, you know, not that many wineries, not that many vineyards. So, but I think that's in the end what they really needed to do because it is so much closer to the ocean, like Marob and Mount Benson, right, you know, border the ocean. They are, you know, geographically so different to the Coonawarra. So there's no way that they could try and come under that Coonawarra banner. They really needed to forge their own path. And I think that's starting to happen now. And, you know, the Syrah, Shiraz, it is sort of more in that Syrah style. It's cool climate. And people think South Australia, you know, they think it is probably a bit warmer than it is. It is really cold down there. Like, you got a robe, you got to pack a jumper. Like, it is cold. It is windy. Um, and that, you know, isn't so good when you're a tourist in January and you're trying to work on your tan. But that is good for beautiful, cool climate, vibrant, you know, acid-driven Syrah and Cabernet and Merlot and Whites, Pinot Gris, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Chardonnay, um, particularly I think Mount Gambier is starting to sort of get a bit of more of a reputation for fantastic Chardonnay. So it's a region with incredible potential and it just, you know, it's sort of small and mighty is what I would say but with enormous potential. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's fascinating, the regions, the soil profiles, the different um, eras of, of soils that can be traced back going all the way into those those caves. But you've also got that kind of the East Avenue and the kind of the East Dairy Ranges. Does that kind of really kind of protect or, or kind of is that a bit of a buffer b- from the Southern Ocean? No, it's so exposed. You know, it's windy and wild and that is probably the biggest significant factor in the climate of that region. It, you know, now living in Tassie, when I fly back to Adelaide, I'm just like, oh, my God, it's so flat. <laughs> it's just flat as a tack and it is honestly just, it's an ancient desert and it really is. Um, but it was underwater, well, down near Robe. It's an ancient sea. So what you get is this sort of undulating rolling hill, like not even hills, just rolling, you know, mounds, you know, really not very, they're not hills, but they're, you know, the vineyards are kind of, you get these patches where it's a bit more sandy, which is the lee, you know, the ex lee side of the dune. And then you get a patch on the other side, which is slightly different, which would have been the other side of the dune. Um, and then it's just the wind. So you get, there's this phenomenon, the bonnie upwelling, which is really prevalent. Everyone knows it down there. It is when these um, really cold air fronts come literally straight from Antarctica, up, move up through, you know, literally hit the shore right at Robe and Mount Benson and Kingston. And as that wind comes up, it pulls the ocean currents with it and that freezes the wind and then that just blasts the coasts and it cools the vineyards um, 
And, you know, if that wind comes at the wrong time, like there's been a few vintages when I was there when that wind came right at flowering. So in spring is a time when it typically is quite windy. You know, that can sort of disrupt the flowering, the buds of the, you know, future grape bunches. And that's where you get like hen and chicken and uneven ripening. But when those winds come in sort of January, February, March, when you the bunches are already formed and they're strong enough to take that wind, it's really good at just preventing diseases. It aerates canopies um, and it keeps that beautiful, cool climate healthy. It just makes it easier to make good wine down there without having to use a lot of sprays. You can sort of be a little bit more hands-off and just – um, let the grapes go through their natural ripening and then pick when it's ready and the grapes are still in pretty good shape. So it's quite, the wind, even though it's frustrating to be in the wind all the time, it's quite helpful for your winemaking and your vineyards. Well, yeah, you need something to keep you sane. They say that like really windy areas do make people go a bit batty, so I suppose, but if you've got Well, that's wine. why I'm batty. We'll blame it on that, hey? <laughs> Never. But, I mean, I think it's pretty cute that you wanted to live in a shack with your hunk of a man and uh, you didn't care where it was. I love that. <laughs> That's it. Um, I'm always up for an, an adventure. I'm pretty open-minded and it was good times in that shed. I mean, it was a nice shed. It was lined, you know. We didn't have a lot of worries. We had a nice bit of land, a couple of hectares and little garden and, yeah, that was sort of before kids. So we did a lot of surfing, a lot of fishing made some wine it was pretty good times I love that I mean surfing I'm not so sure it looks sharky I mean I'm just looking at maps right now and I'm like yeah that looks great white territory kind of area oh my husband will tell you nah it's not he's he hasn't seen him there maybe it's it's I think it's too cold for sharks (laughs) (laughs) we'll keep telling ourselves that right yeah exactly Now, tell me a little bit about, you know, the sea change and the move even further south. How did that all come about? Yeah, so we were in Robe. Tom was there about 12 years and I was there about eight years. Um, And along that time, so I was making wine at Norfolk Rise. I sort of, I started Aunt Alice in that time in my second vintage at Norfolk Rise because it was, you know, obviously, you know, a commercial brand. Um, We were making incredible wines at, unbelievably low prices like the bot you know the wines were selling for 20 bucks and we were winning you know trophies but um the brand it was very you know not conservative but just you know it was pretty straight edge and I don't think anyone when talking about me would say I'm straight edge uh so I just wanted to explore experiment just sort of feel you know limitless um and just make the wine that I wanted to make without sort of having to answer to anyone so I started Aunt Alice it was one barrel in the shed of um it was mainly Pinot Noir because I again had seen this region that they were making a lot of Syrah and Cabernet but I just saw this huge opportunity for like those true cool climate varieties like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay which sort of weren't really being utilized they weren't being talked about they were sort of just being sold off by companies um Norfolk Rise had a couple of Pinot Noir vineyards but they weren't even making the wine from them they were just they were mothballed and in my four years there I managed to get them to actually bottle that Pinot and it was pretty good um and so the more and more I went along you know having being allowed to sort of make the wines I wanted under my own brand Aunt Alice I was moving away from Syrah and Pinot Gris and Cabernet and I was just becoming 
more and more obsessed with Pinot Noir and in particular Chardonnay. Uh, and so obviously my budget doesn't allow me to drink Burgundy every night, unfortunately. So in my drinking, I began to drink more and more uh, like great Australian examples of Pinot and Chard. And that drew me to Tasmania. Um, also, Norfolk Rise was owned by the Kreglinger Group, which had Piper's Book, still has Piper's Book in its portfolio. So I was going down a bit to Tamar Valley, Piper's River, to Piper's Brook for sort of management meetings um, and all of that sort of thing. And so I was just getting this slow, steady exposure to Tassie and its wines and its people. And I guess it just just sucked me in. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tassie tends to do that. Tell me about the name Aunt Alice. How did that come about? Well, Aunt Alice originally was actually going to be a condiment and preserve shop in Adelaide on Goodwood Road. <laughs> no way. Did so you had you copyrighted the Yeah. The, so awesome. Well it was gonna be like I don't know what it was gonna be. It was, you know, it was one of these things. It was a work in progress, something that I'd thought about, you know, on twelve hour bus rides in Turkey. It was gonna be like a wine shop like we were going to say it was going to be like a bottle with selling wine selling condiments and stuff that I'd made jams um pickles um it was just going to be I guess like this flavor shop I don't know how to describe it but just hot sauces um chutney yeah just you know everything like this and at the time um so this was before I'd even met Tom I was just an aunt and I was that it was going to be a bit you know a bit loopy a bit kooky which and I was, you know, an aunt to my two beautiful nephews, Chase and Darcy, um, and I just thought Aunt Alice, it kind of has that, you know, that matriarchal vibe, you know, that that cooking, those family recipes, that, oh, you know, that secret tip, like, oh, you know, this brand of this certain sauce or blah, blah, blah. Like it kind of was born from that and then it sort of morphed into, you know, when I got the winemaking job, it sort of just naturally, organically evolved into what it is today, which is um, my wine brand. Still making, still all about flavour, but just in, you know, just wine now. I still make my little my little pickles and do my cooking, but not commercially. But maybe when I go into retirement, I can focus more on the chutney. Chutneys. <laughs> You've put it out there now and I feel like it really, you really need to have some kind of small offering of a crazy weird chutney, you know, maybe something weird from Tassie, throw in some things you don't expect. Yeah, yeah. pepperberry or something. <laughs> yeah, yep. Well, we've got this weird tree that's growing in our backyard, actually, that we don't know what it is. It's We're calling it a chum, and it's like a cherry plum. <laughs> so maybe I can make chum jam. <laughs> it's got a ring to it. <laughs> chum jam. Aunt Alice's chum. It d- doesn't sound good, does it? <laughs> Might have to uh, send that one back to the marketing team, I reckon. <laughs> well, tell me what, if your nieces and nephews, if they could describe you, would they say that you were the fun aunt or the crazy aunt or the weird, wacky and wonderful aunt? Yeah, probably all of those things. Um, yeah, they would describe me as the crazy aunt, uh, you know, always with a drink in hand, always wanting to have some fun, try something new. 
Um, love them dearly. Take them to the park. I mean, I don't – obviously, moving down here, we've got no family down here in Taz, so um, it's – I'm missing them dearly. They just came down recently for Dark Mofo, which was awesome. They stayed with us. We went to – the winter feast and you know tried a tried lots of different things there they had some um ice cream and all all sorts of beautiful delicious weird and wonderful things which i got for them so yeah they'd probably they probably think i'm a bit weird i guess i love it i feel like i need an auntie alice in my life <laughs> to take me to dark mofo and do those fun things <laughs> That's it. We all do. Now, tell me a bit about your your two wines or your well, your Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. I suppose Ocean is uh, a little self-explanatory, but just run me through the, the wines that you make. Yeah, so in 2022 was the first vintage of Aunt Alice, the Tassie version. Um, and so 16, 2016 through to 2021, uh, making wines in Road Mount Benson and – had a few more wines in the range, had a kind of crazy red, weird blend, chillable red thing that was like Pinot-esque with like God knows what else, Riesling, Savvy, whatever else tasted good on the vine, lots of whites and reds together. Um, and I made the Pinot um, Night Sky from 2017 vintage on. So I feel like the Pinot's probably had the biggest evolution Um so 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and then the 23 Pinot is in barrel. So about seventh, seventh year on that one. Um, and just really, I guess when you've got your own brand, the beauty in it is that you can just make the wine that you want to drink, as selfish as that is. And you're not, you know, you don't have to please anyone. You don't feel obliged to do anything the same year after year you can source fruit from different regions different vineyards and I guess when I first started making in 2016 17 18 those first three vintages were quite experimental and probably a bit more sort of natty in their ways um I mean I'm still wild ferment but I'm using a little bit more new oak these days um Still, yeah, pretty hands-off, but I'm filtering these days. So it's been an evolution of, you know, personal kind of taste. But every year I'd say there's that theme of I'm just making the Chardonnay and the Pinots that I like to drink. And as my taste has evolved, as I sort of zoned in, I guess, on Tasmania in particular as like a Chardonnay-producing region and Pinot, obviously, Um I'm sort of more and more making those wines, just morphing into those wines that I love to drink, which is vibrant, fresh, you know, speaking to where they come from uh, and yet supported by winemaking. I think, you know, there's that big saying, wine, the best wines made in the vineyard. Well, is it? I mean, if you dump a ton of grapes at the winery and don't do anything to it, it's not going to taste good. They're, you know, you got you, you still got to make it into wine. So I know what they're trying to say when they say that, but, you know, you've still got to get it from a grape into a, into a bottle um, without – there's a few months out there. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just being hands-off but having that intuition to do what needs to be done and to – 
work with what you've got. And I guess that's probably what comes back to Norfolk Rise, what I learned, just tasting those grapes in the vineyard. And it's just like when you're cooking, you just taste what you've got and like make the best thing you can make from that ingredient and what that ingredient is giving you. Is it a high acid? Does it need softening with, you know, sugar or fat? Same with grapes, you know, and that's, I guess, been the evolution there. I love that. And I also think it's really important, especially when you're starting out as a, a, a emerging brand, to tell the story. And it's not like you go, oh, I made my first vintage. I nailed it. It's perfect. I'll just keep doing that year after year. So, I think it's really great to be able to kind of take, you know, your your the consumer and, and the people buying your wine and your friends along for the ride and what you're learning year in, year out. And I, I just think it's a really open way of telling a story. A hundred percent. And if anyone that bought that first vintage wants a refund, that's fine. Get in touch. Um, more honesty, always a thing from me. Uh, we actually destemmed the grapes from that first vintage in 2016 through a crab net because we didn't have a destemmer. So, my husband and I, we were just on either end of this crab net literally shaking it as hard as we could and that's how we destemmed the grapes, that first vintage, into the uh, nully bin. So making the wines in a real winery now, we're filtering, um, you know, I just – it has definitely been an incredible journey uh, and I have just learned so much and I'm so grateful to have had those opportunities to do what I've done. It's been amazing. Well, look, you know, there are elements of oyster shell in Chablis. I reckon a little hint of crustacean <laughs> ain't so bad. <laughs> oh, there might be more demand for that 2016 going forward. <laughs> oh, I think I don't even know where it is. We weren't even legal then. We were just bootlegging to family and like it was a barrel and it wasn't even real. And then everyone was like, oh, no, nah, we need more. That, that was good. It was good. Make more. I'm sad that you don't have a little put away so I could look at it with you one day. I think oh. we do. It's all under Ocean's bed, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> her room is full of It's wine. so good. I love it. Um, I love it. You're amazing. <laughs> Alice, if you had to choose three drinks that you could drink for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Yes. So I found this question quite hard. Um, and I guess I'm pretty simple, to be honest. Like, I, I – you know, as I've alluded to a few times throughout our chat, I only really, well, I mainly drink Chardonnay. That's what I drink 90% of the time. So I had to have a bit of a think. Um, but then I did remember and I would have to drink it and it's something that came from my Canada days uh, and it's called, I really want to emphasise that it is not a Bloody Mary and it is nothing like a Bloody Mary. It's the Canadian version and it's called a Caesar cocktail and it has a sort of tomatoey base but it's quite thinned out yeah it's clam juice is it but that sounds gross too so it's not I don't want to put people off it's like this incredibly complex like depth of flavor it's kind of like when you put fish sauce in a stew like the fish sauce on its own is obviously gross but then when you put it in something it's like you know better um and then you put like Worcestershire sauce, Tabasco, heaps of salt, heaps of pepper, lots of lemon, like olives. And it's, you know, it's like a meal in itself. And then you can have it with like gin or vodka. Um, and they are delicious. And it's all I drank for my 
entire time in Canada. And when I stepped off the plane um, for that, that vintage back then in 2015, that's the first thing I did. I just went straight to the nearest bar and said, give me a Caesar. And I love them to this day. <laughs> so that would be definitely one. And then um, the second would obviously be Chardonnay. Um, Chardonnay, you know, you talked about Chablis, that oyster shell character. Like I think within Chardonnay as a grape, you can get such a huge variety. Like you can have that Chablis that's like driving, fresh, you know, steely, astute wines through to, you know, your Montrachet, your Chassan, like rich, you know, voluptuous, oaky, and then you've got your domestic virgins of that, you know, Yarra Valley, Tassie, every possible, you know, incantation of that grape you can get, every mood you're in. So I don't really think you need to drink anything other than Shadi. So, you know, the third drink, I was like, oh, what would it be? Like maybe Pinot, but probably, to be honest, or like a dirty martini or something, but probably just... Just more Chardonnay, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So we can put down all Chardonnay, including a cask of Columbard Chardonnay to ode to the good old days. That's it. What percentage of very fresh dry white is Chardonnay? That's my question <laughs> to Barry. <laughs> I love it. Don't forget where you come from, you know. It's very important. <laughs> no. Essay through and through. I love it. Chardonnay, Chardonnay, more Chardonnay and a bit of a Caesar. I think I can get down with that for sure. Love it. (laughs) Alice, it's been such a privilege hearing more about you. I could easily chat to you for the rest of the day. Aunt Alice is doing incredibly well at selling out all over the place. If you do see a bottle, grab it up while you can. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a total joy. Thank you so much, Shante. I love this podcast you do good good things it's unbelievable i have a 55 minute drive to work every day and i listen to it a lot it's great thanks thanks for having me in your ears and i'll chat to you soon cheers to you alice thank you this is over a glass i'm shante whale stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks listen in every thursday on your podcast app follow us on instagram at over a glass pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.